What is up, everyone, and welcome into episode 41 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com, and my co-host, who will be joining me shortly, is Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. As you've come to expect, we have a ton of stuff to get to this week. We're going to talk about creating a groove for a song. What are the approaches that Mike and I take when we're writing a drum part from scratch? Our featured artist this time is Mr. Jimmy Branley. In our gear review section, we'll check out some new symbols from the Masterwork Company. We're going to get to a ton of your questions, and as always, we'll give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. Speaking of what you just showed me, which are the, the, yeah, I don't care. I'm going in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going in, man. You showed me. Uh, obviously, the people listening to the podcast can't see this, but you just showed me uh, uh, a stick, and uh, one of our campers learned the rules the hard way. He came to camp, and he was just, I mean, one of the sweetest human beings I've ever encountered. Uh, and and honestly, a great drummer, did a great job, but he's he's kind of new to drums. So he's, he's an adult drummer playing, I think, about four years. Um, so he's really good for how short he's been playing, but obviously he's new to the drum world. So he shows up to camp, and it was like on the fourth day, he's like, well, I'm going to break these out. They're a little special, and breaks out these bright blue Zildjian painted sticks. Oh. And I just see them on his pad, and I'm like, and and he's getting ready to go up on my kit, and I'm like, so you're just going to go up there and mark up my heads with those sticks? And he, it didn't click for him. He's like, all right. And he just gets up and goes, and I was like, all right, I'll let him do it. And first snare hit, bright blue mark on my white snare on my white head, and then he keeps going because he doesn't. He's like, I, I, should I stop now? And he's just such a sweetheart guy. So he's done, and I'm just kind of laughing inside because I don't care. It's no big deal, but I'm I'm just sitting there. So I go. How's that snare head look? And there's like 40 bright blue dots everywhere. And he's like, yeah, man, I'm sorry. It's really messed up. And I was like, so I grabbed his sticks. I just snapped them right in oh, half. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then we just hung them in the room. And I was like, do not bring painted sticks to drum camp. I gave him some new sticks. I, I, but uh, You went hawk on him. Dude. <laughs> It's you know, but I was trying to tell him. I said, "Bro, this is so not your fault. This is part of the evolution of a drummer." You're like, "Oh, those are bright blue. That's got to be better." You buy them, you know, or whatever. <laughs> I mean, I've 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 fallen for everything in my time. So I'm always explaining that drumming is a timeline, and you're on a journey. Well, he hit that part of my journey when I was four years deep into drumming. I was nine or ten years old. So hell yeah, I had blue sticks. Did you hand just, him a bottle of Pledge or a bottle of Windex and make him scrub it <laughs> no, off? No, I did not. I was just like, the only stain that should ever be on your snare drum is blood. That's that's fine. If you nick your finger and it bleeds, that's fine. But bringing your bright blue painted sticks to drum camp, I had to shut it down. It was actually Dang. quite awesome. That's it bonded the camp. It bonded yeah. the camp. It was good. <laughs> it was all in good fun. I promise you that. So, How's your day going, buddy? It's going good. So we have a, a correction to make from last week. Okay. Jump the Shark is actually from Happy Days. It is. Fonzie jumped a shark on his motorcycle. No. Yes. Ski, water skis. Skis. Jeez Louise. But he was still wearing his leather jacket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I was, as soon as that podcast aired, I got about 100 messages about my health. Yeah. Uh, and then 100 messages about, about, it wasn't Dukes of Hazard, and it's like, ah, fine. Whatever. It's all the same, but... Uh, <laughs> We will do our best not to jump the shark, but yeah. now we know. Fonzie but, jumped a shark on water skis while wearing a leather jacket. I know, but apparently, jumpthesharkshark.com, the website, has actually jumped the shark because they are now owned by TV Guide. Shut up. Yeah. So if you, the Jump the Shark website is now housed on tvguide.com. 
Oh my goodness! So that's Can a, we trust anybody? That's like a double jump. That's <laughs> a double whammy. <laughs> oh, beautiful, beautiful. Well, everybody knows now where that came from. Oh, and also, Powell Randolph said he he wrote in and said he suggests the next care first aid tape as another option for covering up blisters. Fantastic! I'll take. I haven't tried. That is beautiful. Cool. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful stuff. Well, good man. So you got any gig? Or you were just in Vegas, right? Yeah. Or was that I, two yeah. weeks ago? That was that was this past weekend. So I flew okay. in Friday, basically went straight to the venue and sound checked and played. Got no sleep. Did it again Saturday. Stayed up all night. Hopped on a plane at six a.m. and, and flew back home. Whew. It was it was Vegas is a young man's town. <laughs> 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 Three hours sleep in in two days is not oh, healthy. It is not good for you. <laughs> no. I'm glad you made it back alive, buddy. Yeah, no. But, I mean, alive. as soon as I hit the airplane on the, on Sunday morning, I was asleep. I woke up as we were landing, so it was always wow. There. Cool, man. But the gig was fine. Yeah, it was fine. It, I cool. mean, it's like it's a country venue, so people were actually like line dancing to the music, which I mean. Uh, maybe that's normal, but when I usually play modern country gigs, it's not that. It's usually just right. like a, a bar where people are just hanging out and maybe dancing normal. But they were actually like rehearsed doing line dancing routines. That's well. That's what I was thinking in my head. That's why I asked you last week. Like, and and maybe it's just because you hadn't done it like that. But I have done those gigs, and it was like my drumming has to change drastically when every note is being counted on for dance steps. Absolutely. I mean, it was it was flipping me out because this guy's songs are not written to be that way. So there's right. a lot of stops and a lot of vocal breaks, and I ended up just kind of plowing through most of them. Yeah, yeah. I, I always just kind of go with four on the floor on the kick. Even if the whole, if all of my drumming stops, I just keep the kick going or the hi hat going. Something has to be consistent going. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's so funny because I've had two gigs that were like that. I mean, two styles of gigs. When I play, even if it's in Sacramento, California, when I'm doing anything Afro-Cuban. Same thing. Like it's not like the clave is a suggestion. You yeah. know, I, there's there's people that are dancing, and I have to play correctly. And then same thing with the country thing when I've had to do the line dancing thing. And it's it's one of those things where once you get once you get up there and you start seeing oh oh these people are literally dancing to my groove. Yeah. Then improvisations are out the window, and it's like all right, just going to play as simple as possible and do my job. Yeah. You know? Drive it home, and also learn like tempos of. Of songs, or some are just really awkward for people to dance to. I bet, yeah. You know, even though they were written at whatever, like 80, 88 BPM, that doesn't quite translate well to, to line dancing. There yeah. were a few that was like, yeah, okay, maybe we should never do that song if it's going to be this kind of a situation. Because <laughs> they're kind of or like we... in between partner dancing and line dancing tempos. Right, right. <laughs> and, they, really and they're already mostly Caucasian, so they can't dance anyways. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. There's no real rhythm there. So they're, <laughs> you're doing everything you can to help the situation out, but it's just <laughs> just uncultured. You can cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyways, you ready to get into some good stuff? Yeah, let's chat. Okay, so I wanted to talk about the 14, is it six and a half? Yes. The 14 by 6 and a half, um, 40th anniversary modern drummer snare drum, the Walnut one uh, that you guys sent out. And I demoed it, a, I guess, two podcasts ago. And it happened to be, I listened to it and it was just like, oh, man, that is so not what that snare drum sounds like. And it, w- it happened to be while we were doing our two mic test, yeah. I had just gotten a bunch of new gear. I really didn't know how to set up for it. And that just happened to be when I demoed the snare. 
And I felt really bad when I listened to it because I was like, I, I just want to make sure there's an honest representation of that drum. And, the, and what really brought it up, it wasn't really the podcast as much as it was we did during our camps, we do kind of a snare drum, not really a shootout, but I let everyone pick a snare drum. I have like 15 or 16 snares here now. And they're all different wood types, they're all different sizes and everything. And obviously one of the campers picked out your guys' 40th anniversary walnut snare. And we all just really love the sound of it. He had it tuned down pretty low, and it was just really fat. And I was like, that's what that snare is supposed to sound like. I really, really need to re-record this with, with a new setup. And also, one thing that has changed in my setup is I finally I'll, – I'll send you a picture later, but I finally just committed – I've never had overhead mics ever. I always uh-huh. have two mics behind me. Not the best setup, but it's – I'm sacrificing the sound to get the look on camera that I want. And there's no way to get the stands in here with all the camera angles we have without it blocking some of the angles. So I actually drilled a hole in my ceiling and put a mic stand in the ceiling. So there's just a a black pole coming down out of my ceiling. And then I I snaked the cable all through my ceiling and brought it down into my mixing room. Awesome. Uh, So there's no stands on the ground. But now I have an overhead mic directly over the kit. And it's in the perfect position. And... The drum set has never, ever sounded this good. Are you um, using a stereo mic? I'm not. No, I'm actually just using a, a single at the moment because I'm just using what I have. Yeah. But I might in the future. But honestly, I'm going for a very mono-based sound because I really do feel that 80% of anyone that's listening to me is listening either through earbuds or their phone. Yeah. Um, it's pretty rare that anybody's – I'm not sending tracks out to be mixed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, now, I still have the two mics behind me, but now I've been able to turn those. Instead of those being overheads in a weird position, now those are truly room mics. And I can bring them way down in the mix and just and compress them more and just bring them in to fatten up the sound a bit. So so anyways, that being said, I've kind of filed, finally dialed in my drum sound, and I wanted to give the 40th anniversary snare an, at least a, a more true representation of how it sounds. Now, just to make sure that everybody knows, I have changed the head to the head that I normally use. I've tuned it to the way that I normally tune my drums, uh, and I will play it in this audio example. I'll play it without any muffling whatsoever, and then with my normal amount of muffling, which is just a, a single piece of Vader buzzkill. Cool. That was the uh, actually three ply. Walnut is the outer ply. Poplar is the inner ply, and mahogany is the like inside ply. It's so, weird that we name it after the outer ply, which yeah, has probably the least to do with the sound, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's considered the veneer, <laughs> yeah. right? And then it's got gorgeous uh, maple reinforcement rings. Yeah, solid maple re rings. So yeah, those are still available. So just email us at mdinfo at modernjumper dot com, and you know we'll hook you up. Sweet. 
Uh, yeah, we're still offering the hundred dollars off for podcast listeners as well. Ooh, doggy! So very nice, very nice. Ninety nine, cool. Yeah, well, thanks for doing that. Um, hurry up and box it up so we can get it sold. <laughs> you got it, buddy. It's going out today, actually. And I, I was like, okay, either he's really, really needs this out, but you sent me the 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 email twice <laughs> yesterday. Oh, we had email problems yesterday. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was like, dude, I'm, I'm I got it. I'm sending it out. It's going out. It's going out tomorrow morning. So yeah, it, it will go back to you guys. Uh, oh, so cool. All right, so let's get into our first uh, topic. Let's talk about creating a groove for a song, mm. which is pretty interesting. I mean, I, I had to like jot down an outline that of my ideas, and I'm looking at it, I probably do this 50 percent of the time and 50 percent of the time not. So I think it's it's kind of hard to be super focused. But why don't you go through your approach first? Sure. Well, I, the reason why I wanted to talk about this topic is because we always hear the finished product and we just assume that there was this magical rehearsal moment where Steve Jordan showed up, heard half a measure of a guitar riff and just played the most perfect groove ever. Maybe that is the case for Steve Jordan, but it's definitely not the case for all of us. And so I wanted to make sure that our listeners knew, knew that there there's a process in writing a groove. So for me, when somebody brings me a new song, the first thing I do is play through the entire song with the most basic groove I can think of. Like, kick on one and three, snare on two and four. And what I'm listening for is not, do I need to add anything or does this groove work? I, I know that most likely this groove isn't going to be the one that I stick with. What I'm listening for is everything that dances around one, two, three, and four. So I can kind of go, oh, that keeps happening, that keeps happening. I'm going to kind of emphasize that with the band or <clears throat> with the groove. So I'm listening for that stuff. If I'm lucky enough to be in the same room as the person that wrote it, I never, ever have too much ego to immediately say, hey, what are you feeling? Right. And then usually the guitar player or the singer-songwriter will just tap something on their chest. They don't know drum speak. They're not going to say, give me some syncopated sauce on the hi-hats with kick on the eve two. They're not going to give me the real drum part, but they might kind of do something. Like if they start thumping on their chest and quarter notes, I'm like, oh, okay, you're feeling like a four on the floor thing. Okay, fine. So, because I, I honestly believe that whoever wrote this song is a better drum part writer than I am. Because I always come from the drummer's perspective. I want cool things to happen. So it's like, hey, what are you hearing that would really surface this song? So I ask them that. And then, like I said, I play through the song a few times with a basic groove. And then I start dialing in things like, okay, I'm going to, we'll deal with hi hat and snare later. What's the kick going to do? Am I literally mimicking the song or am I just kind of letting the song dance around me? Sometimes it's a call and response thing. Sometimes I'm mimicking it. It just depends. Uh, then I start you know, messing around with, I know snare is probably going to be on two and four, but then I start adding ghost notes. Are these ghost notes helping the song or are they distracting from the song? And then the polish on top is the hi-hat. Am I going to keep it? accenting the downbeats? Am I going to give it some more life by accenting the upbeats? Is it syncopated to break it up a little bit? And so it kind of, it's like a, a bottom to top thing. I start with kick, then snare, then hi-hat. Uh, and that's just kind of my process. What about you? Pretty similar. I, mean, I, I usually start out doing a whole lot of listening before I get to the drums. So like if it's a full song that comes in with, with no drums on it, I'll just listen to it three or four times and just mm -hmm. kind of assess the style, the sound, the genre. What's the mood? Uh, and then I dig into what references are popping up. So is it, if it's a pretty heavy kind of industrial sounding track, well, then I'm going to think, all right, well, what would, what would Rob Zombie do for the drums or something like that? Yeah. Um, or if it's, if it's more of a, like a Jimi Hendrix sounding thing, well, okay, that's going to put me in a Mitch Mitchell mode with that drum sound and what type of part would he come up with? 
or I'll do the opposite. If it's a project where I think they don't they don't want it to be so obvious. If it sounds like Jimi Hendrix, then all right, then I'm not going to do the Mitch Mitchell thing. I'm going to go the. Then opposite. what would Rob Zombie do for the drums? Yeah, yeah. It just yeah. it just depends on the artist, but listening to it many times is is crucial for me because that way I don't just fall into a physical habit of sitting at the kit and just playing. Um, I jamming usually, over it. Yeah, just jamming over it and just doing the typical stuff. So I usually end up singing ideas that, that aren't reliant on me actually moving my limbs. And then once I kind of find something that I think gels, I'll, I'll get on the kit and usually just free jam and then see if any of that listening and singing translates into parts that, that work out naturally. It's usually some sort of amalgamation of of something that just feels right on the drums and something that I was thinking of before I got to the drums. Um, and then almost every single time I have to simplify the kick drum part. Yep. I think yep. that's usually the, the biggest culprit of making a track just not sound professional is a, is a way too busy bass drum. So I'm always thinking, I actually think of the bass drum as a bass guitar. So that, that way I don't just play stuff. So a bass guitarist wouldn't, wouldn't be filling in all the notes in between the, the the piano part and stuff right right so it, yeah. it becomes its own line its own bass line so then the layers have to kind of fit on top of that so that's that kind of came about when i was touring without a bass player and it was literally the bass drum was the bass there was okay. nothing covering those frequencies so whenever i would play anything that wasn't consistent or very deliberate it just sounded really amateurish yeah, absolutely so that's the first thing. I always simplify and kick parts, and then then I see if I can create a, a, a beat that's more than just one measure. Can it be a four-bar phrase? Can it be a okay. two-bar phrase? So it's not just this repetitive, every four beats, it, it repeats. Um, just to think more musical. I'll use the structure that you talk about, A-B or A-A-B-A, or all sure. within one, one four-bar phrase. Um, and then I go into orchestration. So is there anything that I can do that wouldn't be predictable? So maybe the verse instead of the hi-hat goes to the rim, or maybe the chorus goes to something else, a, a tambourine instead of the ride cymbal. Right. Um, or maybe it doesn't go anywhere and you just let it happen. Or yeah. Or maybe it so, right. right. Yeah. And that's kind of it. And then I just... Uh, or the other approach is I'll think, what's the most important part of the song? Sometimes it's the chorus. Sometimes it's the bridge. And then build a part around that, and then break it down backwards. So if I know nice. the, if the chorus is going to be real crashy and heavy, then the verse has to be contrasting that, and the bridge has to be something different. So maybe I'll be riding on the floor tom or something. So that's basically. I try to just think of it like a like a songwriter most of the time, and then that's let, the let hardest this, part. Yeah, and then kind of combine that with just my years of just playing the drums and what my body wants to do naturally. Right. The other thing too is especially like I said if. We're in a different world now where a lot of times we're learning songs through somebody sending us a track. But, you know, when you and I were growing up, the only way to be learning a new song was because you're in the room with the guy that wrote it or right. the woman that wrote it. And the other thing that I always try to do is I, as I'm testing things out, I look around the room. I'm looking at their eyes. I'm looking for yeah. them to light up with that sparkle in their eye. And they go, uh, that. And I'm like, okay, cool. You like that? Because really, if you want to gig more, Here's the easiest secret. Just make the people around you sound better. They all have huge egos, and they want to sound better on their instrument. None of them want to have the best drummer on the block. Right. They want they want to be like, hey, I sound better when I play with you, so I'm playing with you more often. That's yeah. it. It's easy. So I'm always looking around the room, 
waiting for the bass player to notice my kick pattern and be like, cool, that's the consistency I'm looking for. As a bass player, now I can lock with you. Okay, I've got that down. And then I'm messing around with the hi-hat a little bit, and I'm waiting for the singer-songwriter to get that sparkle in his or her eye and just kind of be like, yes, that, do more of that. Now, here's a question. Once you get there, do you write it down? Do you like actually notate the groove like, okay, this is my verse groove, this is my chorus groove, or, or do you have the type of memory where you could come back to this song three weeks from now and remember what you came up with? It usually just kind of becomes part of my memory, but okay. the, but there's or do you some, record it. Yeah, definitely record it almost okay. immediately, and and sometimes uh, some songs are more structured like a producer than they are a drummer. So then I have to kind of write them out. So if, right. if there's a layer of a bass drum rhythm, and but the toms are doing something a little bit different, I'm just not going to remember it. Um, or if I'm really fighting my natural tendency to do something that's not just instinctual. I'll have to write it out, but most of the time, once I go through the half hour of, of working on it, it's kind of locked into my brain. There you go. Usually. Another thing for, for the younger drummers out there, and when I any time in this podcast where I refer to younger drummers, I'm not talking about your age ever. I'm always talking about how long you've played. So you could be 45 years old, but you've only played for two years. To me, you're a young drummer. Just know that just because you have a lot of stuff on your kit that you paid a lot of money for, it doesn't mean you have to use it in every song. Uh, You'll actually be surprised if you listen to a lot of music, some of your favorite music, go ahead and count the fills. Count how many times the the drummer goes to the ride cymbal. Some of my favorite songs, the verse, chorus, and bridge are all on the hi-hats. The guy never leaves. Maybe he relaxes his foot a little bit, uh, or maybe she goes cross-stick in the verses, but it's not as simple as verse is on hi-hat, chorus is on ride, bridge is on floor tom. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Sometimes it's so, the tambourine that comes in that creates that change. Totally, and and so I think that you know I, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Steve Ferroni. Definitely, there's a lot of Tom Petty songs where if you muted the band, you wouldn't know if it was verse, chorus, or bridge. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just grooving. So don't feel bad about that. And then the last thing I got to say is, please, 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 young drummers, do not feel bad about not playing. Uh, when we have our camps, I'll put on a song. And if there's music, they are drumming. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? I, there's no drums right now. Why, why do you feel the need to instantly play? It's okay to sit there in dead silence and just bob your head a little bit. And you have to get used to how are you going to look on stage when you're not playing? Mm. Because it, it feels uncomfortable for a lot of people. And I've noticed that through these camps where I'm like, you know, there's nothing happening right now. Just sit there and just bob your head. You know, <laughs> and they're like, well, I'll, I'll just keep the hi-hats going. And I'm like, what? <laughs> why? <laughs> Adam Levine isn't wishing you were doing that. There's nothing happening right now. Just sit. So anyways, those are those are all things that as you grow and as you sit in a in a room writing with people, you kind of learn that stuff. But I uh I think if you can no matter where you're at in your life, if you can just form any kind of garage band, you guys are more than welcome to do covers and everything, but if you can just try to write a few original tunes, I can't even tell you the, the type of growth that you will get out of that. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, let's move on to our featured artist. Uh, th- this time, our featured artist is Jimmy Branley, and you guys did a nice story on him in the June issue of Modern Drummer. If you guys haven't seen that, I got to say, the jealousy crept in when I saw that cover shot of Peter Erskine. He just doesn't do anything half-assed. The <laughs> dude is a pro. I was like, ah, that's a good picture. Yeah, I want... Ah, that was it. It that cover looks fantastic, and uh, yeah. and in there is a deep, deep story on Jimmy Branley, which is awesome. Jimmy came to my attention not even on the drum side. I didn't see him play or anything. It was a few years ago. I was at Musicians Institute, and 
I was just doing a guest teaching spot there. And they were all all the students were telling me like, yeah, we went and saw Jimmy Branley last night. And they were they were acting like they just saw Weckl or Vinny, yeah. you know. Yeah. And I was like, I've never even heard of this cat, man. And then I went back, I guess, a year later when Chuck Silverman passed away. They had like a nice little uh, thing for Chuck and Jimmy played at that. And then I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. why?" So what I what I noticed right away was and it's so funny because you guys almost have it. This was in my head, and then I read the issue, and you guys almost said verbatim what I was thinking, which is I had the names a little different, but I was thinking this guy plays like Russ Miller or kind of like Weckl, and then right when you get used to that smooth American fusion, all of a sudden this left foot clave comes in, and there's some really authentic Cuban stuff happening, Yeah, but so tastefully done. Not like when... We just say, oh, you know what? I haven't done anything authentically Cuban in a while. Let me drop in one bar of clave. It's just, it's so seamless. Like, you just kind of perk your head up and you're like, wait, how do we move to this new mood that he's creating? And so when I saw him play live, got to, I think I just, you know, said hello to him very quick, but I I don't know him at all. I mean, he couldn't have been any sweeter to the crowd and to everybody around there, but the students of Musicians Institute in Hollywood. This is their cat, man, and yeah, yeah. deservedly so. So when did he show up on your radar? Man, there's a – I guess, man, I was in high school. There was a video that was, like, only available on the black market okay. <laughs> that, <laughs> that, Chuck, that Chuck Silverman actually produced. So this was before anyone from the United States could go to Cuba. Okay. He had to, like, go to Toronto to then, like, sneak into Cuba. Okay. So he was going down there and filming these guys, and – there was some laws down there where you couldn't you couldn't film yourself playing drum set. It was like against wow. the law to play drum set down there or something. I mean, I'll get no, yeah, yeah. information. So, yeah, he was living in Havana. So then he was playing in all those traditional Cuban bands. He was in uh, Ng Labanda and some other bands, like killing it, kind of timbale slash drum set playing. And, and young, and, right? And a teenager. Yeah, we're talking yeah. A teenager. So Chuck was going down there and taking his camcorder and just like sneaking the side stage and filming these guys. It was him wow. and, and uh, Raul Pineda and a few other guys. Um, and then he would go like late at night to where they would shed and on the, just practice on these like junkyard drum sets of whatever bits they could gather up. And he, made, he put out a video, a VHS. It's called The Drum Set Artists of Cuba. If you can find it, Jimmy Branley on that video, he's probably 19 years old, has, has got so much intensity, and he's playing like... Like if Vinny Cayuta was from Havana. I mean, it is like ridiculous, scary, frightening. And it didn't, I mean, it also enhanced by the fact that this like black market video, like who is this guy? But right. Like you have language, to buy a second kidney on the black market to right. get this video. Right. I get you. Yeah, but yeah. his language was so far beyond that anything that I had heard because it's that that Cuban sort of sort of triplet sort of 16th note thing and they never resolve on the one but yet he's got like the the Vinny Cayuta chops like, I mean it's a if anyone can find it I actually lent it to one of my teachers back in the day and he never gave it back to me Ooh, oh <laughs> let's call him out right now well dude I mean what's striking me as crazy is you're saying that he's you know somewhere between 18 and 22 in this video let's just say he's like you know, early twenties, late teens. Yeah, but he didn't start playing drum set till he was like twelve. 
So he's yeah. only seven or eight years deep into his journey, and he's killing this hard. Yeah. I mean, he left That's Cuba at age 22. So this probably was like 1994. So that would have been four years. Yeah, he was 18. So this. I'm great. We're the same age, and he's that accomplished. That's freaking <laughs> fantastic. Moving on to our gear review section. <laughs> He's incredible. He's absolutely incredible. Oh, that's so awesome. Now, have you ever gotten a chance to meet him in person? No. Nam or anything? No, I haven't. I guess wow. I, I don't know if he's made it over here. I just haven't uh, haven't checked him out. But actually, I haven't really heard him play since he really kind of got involved in the Southern California scene. So right. I'm not even sure how he's playing now. But when he was 18, it was like fire. Like, well, I, I, like I said, I saw him play the Chuck Silverman kind of memorial thing. Or not memorial, but uh, just whatever thing we had like right after chuck passed at musicians institute and man it was like i said i it was like wait this is russ miller and horacio combined yeah yeah i mean horacio is actually kind of that too but horacio really sticks in that cuban world the whole time he's playing for the most part yeah. where jimmy was like if you didn't know you would just assume oh that's just some cat that grew up in la and then all of a sudden it's like wow that's I mean, yeah, that's the Cuban stuff, but it's a little more authentic. And so reading – I honestly didn't know he lived in Cuba and didn't move here until his 20s. So when I was reading the article – by the way, guys, I hope you know, I, I have no stake in Modern Drummer. I don't care if you subscribe or not. But when when you read these articles, it really, really gives you some insight and clears some things up because you will find out that no one has ever made it on accident. No one has ever become super successful because they – just happened to be talented and jimmy is another one of those examples i was reading the article and i was like good god i I mean as soon as i was done with the article uh i immediately just thought it's southern california that's that's a seven hour drive why have i not contacted this guy and and taken a lesson with him Mm. you know he does have Uh, a great book yeah i was going to mention that it came out in 2004 i think by hudson i can't remember what it's called afro-cuban drumming or something like that. yeah let me i've got it here um but yeah, we'll um, we can put a link to it in our show notes. But I definitely am going to check that out. I'll order that on Amazon today. But yeah, I, I think if you guys haven't seen him, I mean, honestly, just type in Jimmy Branley to YouTube. That's kind of our modern way of feeling like we research somebody nowadays. But you'll see like some Vic Firth performance spotlight videos, uh, some some concert stuff. There's actually even I think he teaches at uh, the Cornell School of Contemporary Music now. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's where he teaches, but there's even some lessons from him on there. So, so you can find everything, and he's he's absolutely incredible. So I'm really glad that you guys featured him because when I saw that kind of in the first couple pages of the June issue of Modern Drummer, I was like, man, that is awesome. All right, well, now let's move on to some of our, our dessert. That is gear review. One thing that I love about the the opportunity to do this podcast is when I was growing up, if Modern Drummer did a review on anything like they do, the reviews are great. But I was like, well, I guess I'll just have to take your word on it because I can't hear it. And one thing that I love about this podcast is you guys actually get to hear the gear that we're reviewing. And hopefully most of you guys are on your commute somewhere and you get to hear it in a car where you're very comfortable with the speakers and you know the system. Uh, so let's get to our gear review. This time we're doing some masterwork symbols. So I'm so unfamiliar with this company. Masterwork, it's a Turkish company? company? It is. They're, they're based in Istanbul. They were, they're, I don't know, what are they like? They're founded in 2002. Um, I'm not sure exactly the origins, but I believe they were started to be an OEM company to supply okay. symbols to other companies. Um, but they make them everything out of B25 bronze, so it's you know top quality, oh, wow. traditional style. 
uh, Turkish symbols, and they have so many skews, which is sometimes, I mean, I think it's a little bit of a detriment to them. They have so many lines and so many different skews. Uh, but they sent us a bunch of stuff, and I chose two that I thought represented the opposite spectrum. So the Jazz Master series is kind of their like traditional Turkish sounding, dark, warm. Um, and then the Valena series, which is kind of their contemporary thing that has some mixed lathing and it's a, a slightly brighter sounding symbol. So I checked those two out. Um, but they have so many other things, the classic series. I mean, there's if you go to the website and you can you can find the. <laughs> The link to all their symbol lines. There's just so <laughs> many of them. Resonant series, natural series, custom blackened series, iris series. I mean, it's, it's it's really confusing. Now, let me ask you this. Okay, so I went to their website, and I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, business idea for anyone out there. Make websites for drum companies because holy crap. Okay, <laughs> so... I went to their website, and since I couldn't hear any of the symbols on there, I couldn't check it out. Um, what I'm wondering is, who is carrying? Like, where would someone get a Masterworks symbol? I mean, there's what is few. the deal? There's okay, are there online dealers? Yeah, there's online dealers, and there's a few independent dealers here um, in the States. I think there's one up in Boston that's carrying these. Uh, they're relatively okay. new on, on this market. I mean, like any any new brand trying to break into to this market is tough, especially symbols, because you have Zildjian, you have Sabin, you have Peisty, you have Minel. How many more do you need? But right. they're supplying an alternative for people who want more of an old, old classic Istanbul-made symbol. Uh, awesome. So what did you think of the jazz symbol? What size did you have? Or did you have the full set? No, they sent like a strange sampling of 15-inch hi-hats, a 10-inch splash, and a 21-inch ride. Okay. And they were awesome. I mean, I, those were kind of right up my alley. They were the ride was really warm and felt great, and it wasn't so complex that it was kind of trashy and gnarly. It was just real, real smooth and, and fun to play. The hi hats were you know, big and warm and dark. The splash was amazing. I mean, absolutely really? amazing. I, I want to buy the splash for the rare occasion that I might ever need to hit a splash. <laughs> <laughs> I was just actually when you said I was like. Are you a splash guy? Like I don't remember ever seeing you use a splash. <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't used a splash on purpose in, in yeah. a decade. Yeah, I'm with you, dude. Uh, not that um, against them. It's just not. A it's sound, so funny because every time someone else uses it, I love them. Yeah. But it never crosses over to where I'm like, that's what I need. I think yeah. mainly because I don't want to see it. I, I the closest I ever got was when it became kind of hip and cool to have your splash upside down on your crash. Yeah, and I was like, "All right, well, it's not going to take up any extra space." And I never used the bell of my crash; that'll work. Yeah, and I, but I still didn't do it. No, yeah, I so. mean, it's funny. I was just watching a uh, Dan Needham studio video. I think Vic Firth did it. And he was going through his setup. He's talking about his symbols, and he always has a splash up there. So he has like his, you know, like he's a natural session junk guy. So his kit is kind of set up to be for anything that would show up. And he has a splash. We're talking about going to some sessions, and it'll just be a. He walks in as you know, his cartridge company sets his gear up. He walks in, it'll be like an empty cymbal stand where the splash was, <laughs> and the producer took it off. Shut up. <laughs> that is awesome. <laughs> oh, that is so great. We basically told him, you're not going to use a splash on my record. <laughs> psh, psh. Yeah, they are They are unique. So, But you yeah. like the 10. It was amazing. I mean, it was really kind of, I mean, splashes are, it's really hard to find a good one. Sometimes they just sound yeah. kind of chimey or... or 
they just don't open up fast enough or they're too too trashy. Too papery. This one was yeah. kind of the perfect blend. I mean, it was really beautiful. Actually, that whole series, the Jazz Masters series, was really beautiful. Well, let's, uh, let's take a listen to those so we can separate those from the Valena series. Yep. Okay, so the other series was the Valena series, and they were kind of uh, surprisingly not what I expected because they're they're very the lathing is odd. They're kind of bright looking. Um, I thought they'd be more like rock symbols. Okay, they, they weren't. They opened up like super fast, almost like shockingly fast, um, which made them kind of fun on the gig because you could just barely hit them and they would just open up real fast. Now, are these both are both series in the same price line? Do you know? Yeah, all their stuff, I, I think it's the same price across the board. Okay, so they're just making different sounds, but it's yep. all the high-quality B25. Yep, so these Got were it. definitely okay. brighter than the Jazz Master, but they weren't heavy or clunky. Um, they were actually quite thin and, and had a bit of trashiness that, that was cool. The, the crashes were a lot of fun. They they, they almost, like, like if, if a kid would hit them, it'd be like, oh, my God, stop hitting those crashes because they opened uh, up so fast. And Really? Yeah. Wow! So you could just you could just kind of like glance them, and it would be a nice, explosive, trashy, clean sounding crash. So they were cool. Now I can tell on the the jazz series that they're kind of very dull on purpose or whatever. But what about on the Valena series? I can't really tell in the picture. Are they polished? They look like they're half polished. Maybe. Yeah, they're kind of half half lathe, half uh, brilliant with a raw bell, um, and they look pretty neat. I mean, I think that's all visual stuff. But they're definitely brighter sounding old, you know, Turkish style symbols. Pretty cool. I like. Awesome. I, mean, I prefer the Jazzmaster, but the Valena would be for if I was playing more contemporary kind of stuff, electronic music or fusion or R and B or something. They'd be great. And then that. in the Valena series, you got what thirteen yeah, hats, 13 fourteen hats. inch crash. Yep, thirteen hats, fourteen inch crash, which was basically like a splash. Uh, Seventeen inch dark crash was a little bit thinner. And then a 20-inch that was kind of like a ride crash. Pretty heavy for, for that crash ride name. but Right. Yeah, they were cool. Awesome. Well, let's give them a listen. Listen. 
right now it is time to get to questions from you guys. We love getting questions from you guys, and it gives us an opportunity to just dig into what you guys want to know more about. And trust me, no matter what your question is, it's either a question that Mike and I still have or it's a question that we had one point in our journey on this instrument. So please never feel bad about sending a question or thinking that it's just too basic because it is not. It is something that we all want to know. So let's get into it. All right. This first one I think is a great question, and I'm, I'm going to leave it up to you to answer it first. So it came, okay. comes from Blake. He says he has a concern about hand strength and health. At what point should you be worried about pain or soreness when playing or practicing? He's never gotten shooting pain, but his forearms and wrists have been sore after long weekends on the road or long stretches of time in the studio. So mm-hmm. he understands that muscles get sore, but he just wants to make sure he's not doing any damage. That's it. I think that's a fantastic question. And it, what's great is it sounds like Blake already knows the difference between chronic pain, shooting pains, and then a totally different pain, which is your muscles being starved of oxygen and then eventually the acid's building up and you're getting sore. Those are good pains. I mean, you're, you, you're literally building things to be stronger, faster, and better and, and have more endurance. So that type of pain I think is, is good. It's when it gets to that point where you're like, man, I can't, I can't open a jar of mayonnaise anymore. Yeah. Then you've got a problem. And Mike and I both, uh, we both started med school at the same time, and we both dropped out the first day. So we our, our advice can only go so far. And you know what would be cool, man? It would be kind of cool to have a drummer slash MD person that we could reach out to and send these questions to to get a, a true professional's opinion on yeah. it. Because we're doing it based off of our own history. and. Yeah. I know when I've had like a legitimate pain in my shoulder and I'm like, uh, I'm probably gonna have to take a week off the drums for a while. And then I know when I've just had the front of my shin on fire from practicing bass drum and it was like, okay, well, this is a good pain. I mean, I, I'm just clearly not as fast and as clean as I want to be. So for, for me, I think it's just knowing the difference between the two pains. When I was on the road, I only had one time where I actually pinched a nerve and it was a bad thing. And I actually had to wear a sling for like a week and couldn't play, but everything else was kind of, I I treated it just kind of like blisters. It's like, all right, I just have to get my endurance up, you know, my cardio, everything. So what about you, buddy? Yeah, I mean, I, I mostly experienced it when I was doing a lot of marching band, where, I mean, the whole the whole technique of playing contemporary marching band drumming is, is very physical. So it took, like, my first year of college when I was in the snare drum line, and we were going, like, full out for hours every day. That was probably the first time when I felt, like, real forearm pain, like muscle right. pain. Um, and I was also practicing a ton of marimba and everything else during that time period. So there was a kind of a balancing act of, all right, I just have to push through it versus when my wrist was started to hurt because I have a cyst in my wrist from skateboarding as a kid. That was a whole different thing where that was like like numbness kind of pain. So that I had to consciously say, okay, I got to go home and ice and do things like that or take some, some right. anti-inflammatories. Um, but yeah, I don't think we should ask a doctor. I mean, it, I think everyone has to go through the period of, of having – sore ankles sore shins sore forearms i don't think you yeah. want sore shoulders or back i think that would be a, a a red flag no i think if you have anything that's sore that has nothing to do with you moving a stick up and down then you know something then you know you're too tense yeah. and there's a great technique um that you can do which is you get on the kit and you start playing something that's pretty intense for you and we've talked about this in way earlier episodes but play something that's pretty intense for you to play Close your eyes, and then starting at your forehead, 
just walk yourself down to your cheekbones, to your chin, and just tell yourself, okay, relax my jaw. And then you go to your neck, relax my neck. And you keep playing this intense stuff. And then you walk yourself down to your shoulders and you just kind of drop your shoulders down. And then you'll find like, why the hell am I flexing my chest? I'm making a drumstick go up and down from my wrist and yet my chest is flexed. This makes no sense. And you kind of walk yourself all the way down to your torso, relaxing each muscle group as you go. And then by the time you get to, like I said, to your waist, it's kind of like, ah, I feel way better. And now my drumming is sounding better. It's a little bit looser. And then your breathing kicks in and that starts to relax you more. So, Have you ever done the uh, the tennis ball technique of rolling your muscles over a tennis ball? I haven't. I mean, rolling your muscles is like, I, I don't know if it's taken off on the East Coast, but you can't even work out in a gym in California without them forcing you to roll everything out. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, they put you on a roller for your arms, your thighs, and it's so painful, <laughs> but it's it's just rolling out all of the acid. From what I understand, rolling out the acids out of your muscles or something. But um, I haven't used the tennis ball one. Yeah, that was something. Actually, in Vegas, the bass player had a tennis ball, and he was rolling his shoulder out and stuff. And we had written some, published some articles a couple of years back about that. So that might be something for you know Blake to consider. Uh, nice. Just carry a tennis ball or a racquetball around with you, and just when you're you know before and after you practice, just roll. Find the spot where it hurts, and just try to roll it as as much as you can stand. I love it. All right, let's move on. Next question comes from. Oh, this is a real short one. Scott Kurth, he said he was listening to the show a couple of weeks ago, and I had mentioned about revisiting one of my favorite drummers. And I guess I wasn't explicit about who it was, but I did mention him later because it was my pick of the week. It was the, uh, uh, what the heck was it called? The the, the Vinny Cayuta record. Uh, okay. The, the, the fusion thing. Yep. So I, the drummer that I was revisiting and still kind of revisiting is Vinny Cayuta. I'll always be re- revisiting him because there's always something I'm learning from that guy, even if it's just his him. cross stick sound. I mean, his cross stick sound sounds like a freaking sample. I was just going to say, it's, 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 it, it is a sample. It is like yeah. the best cross stick ever played. <laughs> And it, what's crazy is it doesn't seem to matter what the snare is because I'm always like, okay, what's the snare that's making that sample? But every video is a different snare, and I'm like, oh, Vince. Yeah, and he'll go from like playing a bunch of stuff and have like a 16th note to get his left hand in position, and it's perfect every single time. So, yeah, Vinny Coyuta is my guy, probably all-time favorite drummer. Always nice. will be. Very cool. Next Very question cool. comes from Simon. So he needs advice on what snare drum he should get. He has two drums right now. One's a deep drum and one's a piccolo. So he wants to get like a, a five or to a six inch deep snare for okay. all around use, all around purpose. He wants a nice crack to it. Pretty much good for all styles. He plays jazz, fusion, funk, rock, metal, gospel, hip hop, electronica. Okay. So, so he, he just was, needs a classic snare drum. Yep. So the two that I would pick, which I mentioned before, is a 5x14 Ludwig Superphonic. You can't go wrong with it. Um, and the other one actually would be the Modern Drummer 40th Anniversary Maple Drum, which is a 55 x 14 solid maple. It's cut with slightly rounded 45-degree bearing edges. So it, that drum was designed to be your like go-to drum when you just need a drum. Yeah, man. So those two. That sounds great. What would you pick? Uh, it's it's tough just because right now my whole world is skewed towards Gretsch because I have s- so much of their stuff here. And I, I wish I had two Tamas, two Pearls, two everything. I mean, I think that right now a Gretsch 14 by 55 Brooklyn is just a nice solid wood snare. It's maple, uh, poplar and maple. 
so it just has a nice sound to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think really the is I think it's just determining the size and the material is what you need to really figure out, and then. The brands, it's just not that massive of a difference. So I th- what I would love for you to do is kind of decide, I'm going to get a 14 by 5.5 chrome over brass. Yeah. Then you can decide, you're going to do Gretsch, you're going to do you know an off-brand. But, um, but yeah, I think a 14 by 5.5, just deciding between metal and wood is, is kind of going to be a much bigger decision for you to make. So you just want to research that part. Yeah, and you mentioned Pearl, and I, that reminds me, this weekend, <clears throat> it was all rental gear. So I got to request, you know, just basic options of what I wanted. And so there were two snares there, and they were both pearl, and they were both the Sensitones here. Sensitone. Yeah, buddy. So there was a 6.5 by 14 uh, black nickel over brass, sort of black beauty sounding drum. Okay. And there was a 5.5 by 14 chrome over aluminum, which that's basically like their Superphonic. And then the okay. other one is like their Black Beauty. Those drums sounded incredible. And, and they're they super really affordable. affordable. Yeah. Soup, yeah, that's that. I think those are in that kind of 250 to $300 range. Yeah. And the, the Pearl Sensitone, I, I don't know if you remember, but probably about seven or eight years ago, they released them with two lugs. Yeah. And, but they were Pearl's two lugs. They weren't just generic kind of, you know, World Max two lugs. And I was like, this drum is gorgeous. It sounds fantastic, and it's under three hundred bucks. Yeah. Uh, this is my new go-to for my students. You know, and yeah. I was a DW artist at the time. <clears throat> I was like, I'm sorry, this this is just such a great value. I'm going to recommend this to everybody. Yeah, I think that's a good option if if you don't have anything in, in that that vibe, like a, a nickel over brass or a chrome over aluminum, and you don't want to spend the extra cash for the Black Beauty. I got to so, say, this is really a personal thing, so it's nothing against their quality because some of my best friends play Tama drums, but I've never been a Tama snare drum fan. It's just not my sound. Never mm-hmm. been a fan. But that SLP line, that yeah. I really feel like that has taken over the Mapex Black Panther line as far as being the go-to under $300 snare drum line of drums. Yep. I've had students bring them in, and it's just like, God, these ju- they don't they don't sound like Tama drums. There's something choked about a Tama snare to me that I've just never liked, for whatever reason. A total personal preference. Yeah, might be the hoops. It could be the SLP yeah. line though is just fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I reviewed that whole thing. Did you? Yeah, that and it's, it's kind of the similar thing. They're they're you know, they're made in Asia, so they they're making the price a little bit lower, uh, but it's quality stuff. So yeah, don't overlook either of those. Nice. Want to do one more question? Let's do one more. This one is oh, we're jumping ahead of myself. This is, this should be pretty simple. So this comes from Chris Carter. Uh, he's noticing that manufacturers are almost all of them are offering bop kits, and they're usually at affordable price. So is this? He wants to know if this is just some sort of made up fantasy to sell more drum sets, or do we <laughs> think that there's an actual purpose to this type of a drum set? Awesome, man. Well, Chris was just here at camp, and uh, oh, cool. What an amazing, amazing soul. He's just, you know, at first I was like, oh, man, this is like an adult hippie, very cool, just relaxed cat. And I'm like, he's always wearing skate gear, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, he's a skateboard guy, right? Like, yeah, like he... he started my favorite skate company ever. So at some point he's like, hey, I heard on the podcast that you used to skate. And I'm like, no, I still skate. And he's like, have you heard of Alien Workshop? And I'm like, yeah, uh, yeah I've had a lot of their boards. He's like, that's my first company. I started <laughs> Alien Workshop and then I'm made this and i did this and I did this and i was like what yeah and, and so he he was awesome and so it was really great having you here chris if you're listening really great having you here man i really enjoyed your energy so as far as the bobcat thing there's a couple things and, and mike i'll let you go off on this for a while but first of all a lot of those bobcats 
those are actually the same price. They would be maybe a little less because the shells are smaller. But if you made those same shells in a normal size, that kit would be six or seven hundred dollars. These are very cheap shells when you're dealing with the uh, Ludwig Questlove Breakbeats kit, or if you're dealing with uh, I don't know what the, the Catalina club kit or bop kit these are not top end shell construction if you went to gretch and said okay i want to gretch usa custom in 18 12 14 you're looking at thirty five hundred dollars just like a regular sized kit right so it's the fact that they're using much cheaper shells you'll notice that on a lot of them not all of them um, but a lot of them you might have a wrap a wrap will cut the cost you might think it adds cost but it actually cuts the cost because they don't have to choose such a great piece of wood for the outer veneer they can have anything uh, because they're just going to wrap it anyways so, yeah, a lot of it is just down to shell construction. These are just cheap shells. But the thing is, when you're dealing with a kit that small, it's not really resonating a whole lot. So it's it's kind of okay. I mean, I know a lot of professional drummers that play for Gretsch, and they gig all the time with a Gretsch Catalina bop kit just because yeah. when they crank it up to bop tuning, they're like, I, I can almost not tell the difference between this and my USA Custom. So Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think part of his question is true. I mean, the companies are – are offering these bop kits as affordable kits because they're assuming that not everyone is going to be playing straight ahead jazz at the village vanguard right. every weekend right. so this is going to be your second or third kit that you're going to take to small clubs or yep. just in your practice room or your teaching studio so that's i think that's the logic behind why they're the affordable version now do i think that these kids have a purpose i think if you're playing any kind of local bar club gig or I mean, they're perfect for that. I mean, I, I play on a Catalina Club uh, bop kit twice a month, and we're doing everything from Hendrix to Ozzy Osbourne and the meters on it, and it's perfect. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's and it, it it just has an inherent governor for volume, so you can't you just can't overpower everyone. Right. You can really kick that bass drum, and you're not going to overpower. But at the same time, these things are all being made well enough to where you can tune them low. They don't have to sound yeah. like a jazz kit. No, I think I would say 80% of these being sold are sold to people that aren't using it as a jazz set. It's a small drum set, like mm-hmm. you said. It's just, hey, I have this gig and my 22 by 18 and my 12 by 9. It, it, it's just absurd in this tiny little corner they're sticking us in. Yeah. I wish I had a bop kit. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know. But I can tell you this. When you play on, like, a professional level bop kit, it yeah. is pretty nice. Yeah, it's a whole different pretty, thing. I mean, yeah. but that's... I mean, if you if that's your sound, you should probably get one of those as well. I mean, a Catalina right. Club Bop is not going to sound the same as a USA Custom Bop no. size kit. Yeah, I mean, it, like I said, once you're playing in a little place, I think the main thing with this is, like I said, with the the guys that I know that are using the Bop kits, the Catalina ones, these are guys that are like, I'm not taking my 125th anniversary out or my 75th anniversary out on the road tonight. I People are going to spill beer on me. Yeah. I just don't want to freak out. But they do sound great, man. And and they are I don't know how they're doing it overseas, but they are coming in some really cool finishes that used to only be available in the upper end lines. So it's yeah. like, I'm like, what is up with that gorgeous satin Tabasco you know, matte finish on a $500 drum set? It makes yeah. no sense. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, I think everyone yeah. should have a bop kit if, I mean, if you're planning on going out and playing in your local bars and stuff. Hey, that could just be our picks of the week. Yeah, right. Just go get a bop did kit. that once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, awesome. Well, guys, please keep sending in your questions to mdinfo at moderndrummer.com. We love receiving your questions, and I love memorizing the email address for that. You got it. I don't have to give you the, the look of death ever again. 
<laughs> we should really publish the video of our Skype chats so that people can see when I really mess something up or when I'm starting to go off on somebody's website, the fear yeah. that you get of like, eh, maybe tone it down, Johnston. I'm like, what is the deal with this font? Yeah, uh, anyways, all right, well, let's get to our picks of the week. Uh, Mike, what is your pick of the week, buddy? Well, I mean, it kind of goes against what you were saying earlier about the colored sticks, but Promark's, uh, <laughs> Promark's new active grip stick. Now, here's the thing with, with this. They sent me a pair of these a couple, like a year or so ago with a clear active grip. They oh. were on the, uh, the Glen Kochi signature stick. Okay. So that, so that was just a clear grip, and the one that they're marketing now is black. Uh, so now, wait, is the grip actually sprayed on, or is it something that you kind of roll on? No, it's just on the stick. It's it's a finish, but it's not okay. um, It's not like a paint. It's more like a rubber-ish, right. some kind of rubber material. So so what it doesn't do is mark up your drum heads. Awesome. Not that I've noticed. Now, I've been playing this one pair for a couple weeks, and the shoulder, all the, all the coating on the shoulder is definitely worn off, but I'm not seeing it on my cymbals or anything. So I think it's just okay. like, like a drumstick. It just chips away Chipping. and falls on the floor. Sure, sure. Now, does that, does that grip stop at like halfway up the stick? It doesn't. It does on the Glencochi stick. It, this one goes from butt all the way up to the tip. So the tip doesn't really? have a coating on it. Yeah. Can you see it? Yeah, yeah. So, well, it looks like a drumstick. Yeah. I mean, I think... I think eventually they should probably stop it at the Promark logo, right? And then offer it in clear. And I would use it all the time because it just—it's not tacky when you touch it, but it—it it, as you start to sweat and play, it just starts to get a little bit of of something, something. Sure, something, something. A little something, something. Nothing so wrong with a little something, something. And it's been great. I mean, I I I'm surprised because I've tried you know the dip grip sticks and whatever right. other company has and it just doesn't feel right but these just feel like sticks so I don't really notice it uh, cool and, and then, these are on the market right now I'm pretty sure they're available now they, okay. they were at Adam at NAM, so they, they should be hitting stores now I know they have a couple of signature bottles the Mike Portnoy and the Rich Ribbon signature models have this um, so it's cool so if you if you need just a little bit of grip on your sticks, check out the Promark Active Grip. I think they're available in basic, like 5A, 5B, and a couple signature models. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, well, my pick of the week this time is a professional desktop tripod. So I have a little tiny tripod that I got on Amazon for like seven bucks that I use for this recorder that we're recording the audio with right now. And I can use it for my iPhone and I can use it for different cameras. But sometimes you actually want a really stable tripod, and so I'm using it right now. It's uh, it's called the Oben O B E N, the Oben TT 200 tabletop tripod. It's fifty two dollars, and that may seem absurd, but I've actually had a Canon C 100, which is like a seven pound camera with mm. a three pound lens on this thing, and it it was so unbelievably stable. It goes up actually pretty tall for a tabletop stand, so I can get this kind of high. And then it folds up perfect. It uh, goes right in your bag. It doesn't weigh a lot at all. But I bought this actually in New York uh, at the B&H store. Mm. And when I was like, wait a minute, they have a whole row of professional tabletop tripod stands that I can use for a microphone. I could use this for anything. I was just blown away. And I bought it as just kind of an impulse buy. And it has been so invaluable to me to be able to set it up on a stage and not worry about it falling over, set it up by my drum set and put a a very expensive camera on it and not worry about it. So even though I have like the little cheapy that I take for like my iPhone, 
having a professional level uh, desktop stand is really important. So this is the Oben TT. 200. Like I said, uh, it's on Amazon for $52. And so if you're somebody that is always recording with a personal audio recorder, or if you're always recording video of yourself and you're traveling a lot, just honestly, just get this and you, you won't be disappointed. It's, it's actually quite amazing. O-B-E-N? O-B-E-N. And then the model number is TT-200. Sweet pretty awesome so and they have different heights and everything so you can get one that's like just like flat to the ground or you can get one that goes much higher but the quality of their stuff is really incredible so uh yeah it's one of those things where the quality is so high that it actually makes everything else like wow maybe i should invest more it's kind of like getting your first good bass drum pedal yeah like how the hell was i even playing before this or throwing a real good throne right right (laughs) something that you think doesn't matter until finally like yeah you know what i got an extra 200 bucks i'm gonna get this rock and sock throw and you're like this is like riding yeah. in a lexus this is incredible i'm so much faster now now that i have a good throne all right everybody well thank you for listening to episode is this 41 41 episode 41 thanks for listening to episode 41 of the podcast by the way i've i've told you in this podcast before at least i think i have but i'm glad that you saw it now isn't the compression on a gopro amazing oh man it was so cool it just I mean- smacks yeah, it sounds great. I mean, I had it in the overhead, like basically right where my overhead mics are, and it uh-huh. it, it got like a better rack tom sound than I can actually record. Dude, I swear, <laughs> every time our cameras come in, they're like, "Well, I have a 4K GoPro. What should I record the audio with?" And I'm like, "Your 4K GoPro. <laughs> it has this built-in compressor that just makes. I mean, it's not like professional audio, but it's totally. It doesn't distort at all. It's totally serviceable audio. Yeah, and it, it it's like." It kind of gives you the bottom sound. It, it I yeah. dig it, man. Yeah, I love GoPro fun. audio. I wouldn't use it for concerts or recording your whole band, but for drum set alone, it's actually quite. It's a pretty cool sound. So yeah. when I I have a GoPro, and when I use it, I I never like if I'm just kind of traveling and jamming on someone's kit, and I GoPro it, I never use an external mic source. It's that is the mic. So yeah, it's very cool. So alrighty, well, everyone, if you can, just give us a nice four or five star rating, and and if you can review the podcast, that's even better. And the reason why we need that is because it helps other drummers find this podcast and it helps them take a chance on us because our goal is to help you guys feel like you're more in the loop of the drum industry and the drumming world. We're all on this huge journey together. Mike and I are going through it ourselves and we want to, we want you to know that we're in it together. So until then for Mike and myself, we're out of here. See ya. See ya.